0: Hello Bulls fans and welcome to another episode of Bulls HQ, a Chicago Bulls podcast on the Blue Wire Sports Podcast Network. Thank you for joining me this week. I hope you're all enjoying the off-season. Well, the off-season for the Bulls, that is, there's still plenty of basketball still going on with the NBA well and truly into its second round. Of course, our Chicago Bulls are not part of it, so there isn't really anything new to discuss, but uh, well, that's not necessarily true. I guess the Bulls did... Agreed to an extension with Jim Boylan, and we knew that was coming, so I guess it's not news. It's news, but it's not news, if you know what I mean. So, But having said that, I definitely do not want to be talking about that today. But uh, I did want to get back on the mic this week because I wanted to go through... A new concept, or not, not a new concept, but go through something that I could, I think, could be a lot more fun and somewhat entertaining rather than uh, definitely talking about Jim Boylan's contract extension just before the draft lottery is sort of uh, approaching here. So this week, what I want to do is play a little game of what if. And you might be asking yourself what the hell I'm talking about. And fair point. So let me explain. So as diehard Bulls fans, if you're anything like me, and I'm tipping you are if you're tuning into Bulls HQ, but like me, you probably catch yourself often, probably at work, a little bored, looking for a little mental release. So you start pondering and your thoughts often lead you back to the Bulls. And because the current team has just completed a nightmare of a season, you often hearken back to another point in time, wondering what may have been if one little variable had changed. And I'm sure you do it. I do it all the time, often putting my thoughts out there on Twitter. So I thought why not do it here on the podcast with you guys sharing your particular what if scenarios and I'll say this, you guys were great in doing that. I, I definitely appreciate everyone who sent through a what if scenario. I received so many good ones that rather than culling some of them or going over all of them in one epic long podcast, what I'm probably going to do is split them over maybe a couple episodes and I'll, cause I want to hit on as many as I possibly can. So the basic premise here is we wonder out aloud. About a specific what if scenario at a point in time in Bulls history and we play out what would have happened next if something just even no matter how small we just have to wonder what happens next and how things may have changed. Obviously I'm giving you my opinion here I'm sure Many of you who will be tuning in will see things a little differently. I'm sure there will be some that would disagree quite a bit depending on the topic, but that's the fun of this. None of this really ever happened. None of this stuff is true, so we're free to speculate on what possibly could have happened if the butterfly effect allowed it to be. So hopefully that's clear. If not, I'm sure you'll pick it up as we go through it. So let's get into it. Like I said, I've received so many what-ifs that I thought the best way to go through this would be to go through it in chronological order. Going from oldest to newest and this one here I mean wow what a moment in time this one was. This one comes in from Serge and basically the we're gonna start back we're gonna we're gonna go back to about nineteen ninety four with this one and, and Serge asks What if Hugh Hollands doesn't call a foul on Hubert Davis's three? Now, for those that may not necessarily know what what surge is sort of referring to here, let me just take you down memory lane a little bit, or at least let me school you on the brief summary on on what what our surge is recalling here. So, back in 1994, to the playoffs, it's season after Michael Jordan had retired, and it's a, the Bulls team led by Scottie Pippen, and, and we're going into the playoffs here where the Bulls and Knicks are actually playing in the second round. So, it's it's actually quite timely. We're in the second round now for the NBA Finals, and. We're talking about the semis back in 1994 where the Bulls and Knicks went up, uh, up against each other. The, the series was tied two apiece. We're in Madison Square Garden. The Bulls are currently leading the other uh, the Knicks 86-85 with about 7.6 seconds left in game five with the Knicks inbounding the ball. So Bulls up one point, 7.6 seconds left in the game. So the way this sort of play materialized was the Knicks inbounded the ball to John Stark who tries to make a play on the right wing which goes nowhere but he is able to collapse the defense enough that it leaves Hubert Davis alone at the top of the uh, three-point line. He doesn't necessarily shoot a foul. He has a foot inside but what happens next is because the balls had left open Hubert Hubert Davis, Scottie Pippen goes flying out towards Davis to sort of contest the shot and in doing so, he fouls him, and, and it's called a foul. Hugh Hollins calls the foul on Scotty Pupin on that Hugh Davis j- a jump shot attempt. It wasn't a three-pointer. It was a two-pointer because his foot was inside the line. But nonetheless, the Knicks are going to the line with less than 10 seconds to play, down one, and Hubert Davis has the chance to put the, the Knicks up by one point, which he does. He makes both, both free throws. So... Pretty devastating that Hugh Hollins would obviously call that foul. It was technically a foul. Scottie Pippen did hit hit um Hugh Hubert Davis on the arms. He hit him on the follow through. There was no, no no body necessarily. Um so technically by the letter of the law it was a book, but the thing About that play is back in then, even though it was necessarily a foul, it's not a foul call that refs typically made. So that's why it's referred to as the Phantom Call because it was just not a play that often got called. And you know, you would watch NBA basketball back in the mid 90s and that just simply wasn't a foul. Technically, it was, but it was just so soft that you would call a foul in that moment with seven seconds left, or at that point, even less than seven seconds left. So it was a huge moment in time for the Bulls because. Had they won that game, they go back to the United Center, up 3-2, game six back in Chicago's building with the opportunity to put the Knicks away then well and truly for good. So the Bulls basically had a chance, had they won that game, to go back to Chicago. All they needed was one more win, assuming they got that or that call doesn't go through. And then they're going straight through into the Eastern Conference Finals, which you can imagine post-Michael Jordan is actually a pretty damn impressive achievement. The Bulls, I mean, they won 55 games without Michael Jordan that season. Scottie Pippen emerged as a legitimate MVP candidate that season. And it's realistic to think that they could have made it to the Eastern Conference Finals where they would have faced the Indiana Pacers who had played pretty well during that playoff stretch in their first and second rounds. So they wouldn't have necessarily been easy beats. But having said that, the Bulls actually played the Pacers during that season five times and they had beaten them four times. Uh, on the season. So you'd have to go into that series pretty damn confident that the Bulls against the Pacers who only won 47 games that season. I think they were the fifth seed off memory. You have to feel pretty good about the uh, the Bulls not only just advancing to the Eastern Conference Finals but then going on to beat the Pacers and getting to the Finals where they would have met the Houston Rockets. So... It's an interesting what if because it, it was a technically it was a foul. Scotty did foul Hubert Davis, but at the same time you just don't make that call at that moment. But I mean the Bulls, if they win Game Five in New York, go home and beat the Knicks in Game Six as they did in actual real life, then. If the Bulls go through the Eastern Conference Finals, I think they match up extremely well against the Indiana Pacers. They probably beat them in five or six games too with home court advantage. So I think the Bulls go to the finals at least. Do they beat Houston? Do they beat beat Hakeem Olajuwon? I mean, that's tough to say. They didn't really have a matchup against Hakeem, but at the same time, the Knicks pushed uh, pushed the Rockets to seven games, if I'm not mistaken, uh, from memory. So given that the Bulls really took it up to the Knicks without Michael Jordan, Surely they would have been a decent, uh, had a decent chance to really give it to the Rockets that season too. So, I mean, we're talking about about a situation where the Bulls actually could have won a title post-Michael Jordan, which is just nuts to think about. That's how good Scottie Pippen and the rest of the team were that season. But alas, it never obviously happened because of that call that was made in Game 5 against the Knicks, so... I don't know, man. I don't know if the Bulls win the title. I'll probably I'll probably be conservative and say that they probably didn't have the right mas- matchup to stop Hakeem Olajuwon. But at the same time, I think it's realistically possible that they, may s- they make the finals. So to have that sort of stripped away because of one call, it is disappointing. I mean, it's not necessarily just the one call. Obviously, there was two games left in that series, but... I mean, you have to feel pretty good about the about the Bulls making the chance, their chances making the finals. Had that call gone fa in their favour, but obviously, that wasn't the way it played out. But um, I mean, yeah, that, that's why I wanted to do this because it's fun to ponder and, and just fun to think about what if and what could have happened if that call didn't made. But um, unfortunately, it was. So thank you for sending that one in, Surge and um. Yeah, it's it's actually funny to think about because there's a lot of there's a lot of moments during the dynasty periods where a lot of things obviously went right for the Bulls, but that was that one moment that uh, at least sticks out to me straight away that things uh, obviously didn't go the the Bulls' favor in that instance. But I mean, you can't complain too much. We got six titles during the '90s, so um, that one doesn't sting as much of a, as much as some other ones. But uh, it is an interesting one to think about. But the next one I want to go, uh, I want to talk about is a little bit later on during. Well, it's it's post the dynasty years, actually. It's after the rebuild, the first I- in iteration of the rebuild. We're talking post-Jordan here. Around the year 2000, the Bulls had walked into themselves into a lot of cap space. And it was fortunate, actually, because it was a good timing because it was during the summer of 2000 where there were some legitimately great NBA players that were free agents, Tim Duncan, Tracy McGrady, Grant Hill, Eddie Jones. They're just a, a few that come to mind. And, and Phil asked this question here. He asked, what if the Bulls had signed T-Mac and Eddie Jones back in the 2000 free agency. And I mean, this is a good question. I mean, we, we often go back to thinking about LeBron and Wade and what could have been with that sort of scenario. But had the Bulls brought in T-Mac or even Eddie Jones, that, that really does change the complexion of the franchise post-Jordan. So in the year 2000, the Bulls already had Alton Brand at that stage. They had Ron Artest too, if I'm not mistaken, if, I, if I'm remembering correctly. And they had about roughly 20 or so million dollars in cap space. So I don't know if they could have brought brought in T-Mac and Eddie Jones they probably only had enough money for one of those guys and look they pitched T-Mac it didn't go ahead they definitely pitched Eddie Jones as well that was a lot closer to happening than the than the T-Mac one I'm pretty sure like Eddie Jones was literally had confirmed to the Bulls that he was going to sign with them um, he had agreed to I think it was a five-year 70 million dollar deal something of that nature it looked like it was a done deal but on the last the last legs of that deal, he was um he offered he wanted to go to Miami from Charlotte, so he was playing for Charlotte at that point, but he wanted to get to Miami. A deal wasn't sort of materializing in terms of the sign and trade, so that's why he was sort of angling his way to the Bulls. And it looked like it was going to happen for a stage. There it was a 60 or 70 million dollars uh deal. Uh, I just looked it up there, not five and seventy, but still a decent offer there for Eddie Jones. But Basically, what materialized was the Knicks, uh, sorry, the Heat and, and the Charlotte Hornets were able to to come to a deal, a renewed deal, where they did sign and trade Eddie Jones to the Heat. So basically, he called up the Bulls and said, Well, the deal's off. And the Bulls, unfortunately, as we've sort of gotten used to here, uh, didn't really walk away from the free agency period with the, the, the top prize that they were sort of looking at. So they missed out on T Mac. That was never really going to happen. I mean, it didn't sound like he was ever going to be a Bull, but. I mean, technically, it was a possibility, but Eddie Jones was very possible, but I mean, look, we're playing what if, well, let's play what if, and I mean, if had the Brawls brought in Tracy McGrady, and then you add him to a core of Ron Artest, and Alton Brand, and even Brad Miller, and then suddenly, in the early 2000s, if you remember back then, the Eastern Conference was bad, it was worse than what it is currently now, and I think that Bulls team, that young Bulls squad, could have definitely grown into something that could have competed out the East. If you think back to the early 2000s, where you had a team like the New Jersey Nets at that point making the finals, and they were barely winning over 50 games. I mean, a team with T-Mac and Brand and Artest and Brad Miller, all you really needed were some bench pieces and maybe a point guard who could sort of spot up and hit a couple threes back in that day, but... I mean that would have been a damn good team, but even if it wasn't team, just Eddie Jones as well. You adding him to that to that younger call, that could have been a damn fun team as well. But they didn't end up with Eddie Jones. They didn't end up with Tracy McGrady. They did get Ron Mercer, and unfortunately, the balls they went from really, really trying to hit it home with that that free agency period and and landing no one, and unfortunately, only winning fifteen games that next season, which culminated in um in the rebuild the first well I guess one of the rebuilds under Jerry Krauss post the dynasty era getting just blown up and I guess a season later Elton Brand was shipped out for Tyson Chandler and and Krause went the Curry and Chandler route and we all know how that played out so yeah it would have been nice to get T-Mac obviously never haven't never happened he went to Orlando with Grant Hill Tim Duncan stayed in San, uh, in San Antonio and forged out the career he did and Eddie Jones went to Miami, but yeah, the Bulls got Ron Mercer and that didn't necessarily play out. But um, it's unfortunate to think about... The whole brand era—it's an interesting parallel to a lot of a lot of what's going on right now. So, well, maybe not necessarily right now, but if you go back two years, where the Bulls had Jimmy Butler and and not a whole much else, but they decided to blow it up and head for that rebuild. So, the Bulls never really believed in Elton Brand being that franchise player. They didn't want to pay him that max deal. A max deal was definitely coming for him, given he was he was the only player really worth a damn on the roster. And if they wanted to keep him, they would have keep him. They would have had to pay him and. In that situation it's very similar to the Jimmy Butler scenario where Krauss wasn't very willing to to go all in on Jimmy Butler so uh sorry, on on Elton Brand, so he he traded Brand and, and, and went for the rebuild and he he went for the Twin Towers in Tyson Chandler and aired Eddie Curry and Again, like I said, we know how that turned out and it didn't turn out very favorably. So in in that sense, it's similar to what's going on now. Now, I'm not saying, or at least I'm not hoping the current situation of Bulls turn out to what to be that, uh, what what Chandler and Curry and that sort of core, how that materialized. I hope there's not too many parallels between those situations, but it's just interesting to thinking and go back in time how there are those similarities. So to that point... Smoked Keith from Twitter. He asks, "What if the Bulls never traded Ron Artest and Elton Brand?" And I mean, this this is an interesting one because it, it really de- de- your view on this particular one depends on how you feel, ab- feel about you know titles of bust or if you're just happy building it, building towards a fun team which you can actually enjoy rooting for. And even though you know it's probably never going to win a title, do you still enjoy the ride? So I think how you sort of view this "what if" scenario depends on 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 your stance on that particular question. Or that philosophy, I guess, for me. I've never been a title or bus kind of guy. I think that logic kind of makes no sense at all. I mean, why would you want to be a sports fan whose entire methodology is just thinking title or bust. I mean, the, the likelihood of your team winning a title every year or, or just generally, you know, how many times is your, your team going to win a title in, in a 40 or 50-year span? Like, if if that's all you really care about is winning championships and anything else is conceived as a failure, then you're going to be miserable most times. So I've never looked at it that way. So I've always enjoyed fun teams that didn't necessarily have a chance to win a title. But so long as they played hard, they played... They played good defense. They repped the city, and and they played together. Then I was enjoying those sorts of teams. So my view on this this situation was: if I, I never really wanted to trade Alton Brand, I, I didn't want to give up on the younger players back then because, I mean, we we had just gone through a period post Jordan where we were witnessing some, witnessing some truly ter- uh, horrendous basketball. You finally get a piece in Alton Brand where you can le- legitimately build your franchise around. Like I said, you're probably never winning a title with Alton Brand, but. When you add, slowly add some pieces around him, like they did with Ron Artest, Brad Miller, Jamal Crawford came in as well. You can sort of see where this maybe may have headed. Again, it's probably no headed nowhere near a title, but if we look back now on the careers that Elton Brand had on what, what the career that Ron Artest had, even Jamal Crawford, even Brad Miller to a lesser extent, they were very good players. So Kraus brought in good guys. And they had successful careers, and had he sort of kept them together, then who knows what have happened. But they they probably never win a title. But we do know that Brand went on to become a really good player with the LA Clippers. He was an All Star the the season after he left Chicago. He was an All Star in two thousand and six as well. He was an MVP candidate that year. Year two, he's a twenty ten player in Chicago, and, and that continued for n- numerous years. Post leaving Chicago, Ron Artest became an MVP candidate of sorts too, a Defensive Player of the Year, an All Star. He was instrumental in making the Pacers a contending team out East during that early period of the uh, the two thousands in the East. Like I mentioned before, that that period during the Eastern Conference wasn't super strong, so you had Artest, who was a, it was a good player too. So there was a scenario there where the Bulls could have actually had a pretty notable team with this squad and. You add in Jamal Crawford and and and, and dare I say it, Fred Hoiberg, who was on that team back in two thousand two thousand and one. He was actually a decent player for the Bulls back then. Uh, the old former coach there. You you had a squad that at least would have been decent and fun to root for. Obviously, it's probably never winning a title, but it still would have been fun. And uh, I, I know some fans will uh, some fans will disagree with me on that one. And I I know. There are, there are definitely some out there that would have, uh, preferred the route that Krauss went, where you, he went all in, he went for, you know, the top of the draft, where he went for Tyson Chandler, who at that point was being, I guess, rumored or being mentioned as a, as the next Kevin Garnett, and Eddie Curry, who was being referred to as Baby Shaq, I mean, When you have those two guys receiving that sort of claim or a claim prior to the draft and you can get two picks inside the top four, then I can see the appeal for it. But it really comes down to your risk profile. And for me, when it comes to the draft, I'm pretty conservative in that sense. So I would have just stuck with the one pick and just sort of added that to the squad. And then I guess just run with the team that they had. But obviously, that's not what they opted to do. So... Yeah, I often look back to that period and just wonder how what what, what what would have happened had the Bulls kept Elton Brand, if they re-signed him after his, his rookie deal was up, if they kept Ryan Artest, if they slowly added pieces to the squad. Do they keep Jamal Crawford at that point rather than signing, signing and trading him to the Knicks? And I don't know, that's a pretty damn good squad. It's, it's a nice little squad. It probably never wins anything, but I still think it would have been fun. But yeah, alas, it never happened. The, the Kraus era sort of ends on that rebuild or or, the failure of that rebuild and and in comes John Paxson not to live too long afterwards to sort of clean up the mess in, in 2003, 2004 after it was clear that that Eddie Curry and Tyson Chandler were in fact not anything like Shaquille O'Neal or Kevin Carnett, unfortunately for the Bulls. So thank you for that what if so? If scenario. The next one that I want to touch on again is sort of from that same period. And this one comes in from Andy Netzel. He asks, what if Jay Williams never rides a motorcycle? So this this one's an interesting one. So the Bulls second rebuild under Kraus, they needed every ounce of lung for it to work. So... Jay Williams crashing his motorcycle after his rookie season, never to return the court to the court again. I wouldn't call that the luck you need. And um, it's unfortunate for the Bulls because they got the second overall pick in that point. They uh, they they selected Jay Williams, who had a so-so rookie year. He, uh, he wasn't that great, to be honest with you. He shot less than 40% from the field, 32% from the three-point line. But he was showing size towards the end of that season that you didn't necessarily want to give up on the guy. But... I mean, he wasn't necessarily a home run pick, I'll put it that way. So, I mean, in terms of the rebuild itself at that point, if Jay Williams doesn't fall off his motorbike or if he doesn't even ride it and comes back next season, I'm still tipping that rebuild probably fails. I mean, I I don't think Jay Williams has any sort of determining effect on Eddie Curry or Tyson Chandler becoming better players or anything of that nature. I don't think Williams was good enough to sort of dictate that. We're not talking about rookie Chris Paul at here at all. Um and, and so I don't think Jay Williams was much good himself. Nine and a half points f- in his rookie season, four and a half assists. He was decent. I mean, 64% free throw shooter from a guard in your rookie season. It doesn't give you much faith in terms of what play he could have been. But that said, I mean, the Bulls won 30 games in Williams' rookie year, a, na- a nine game increase on the previous season in large part because they had someone that could finally do some halfway decent stuff with the ball, which, in, um, which was Jalen Rose at that point. So... I mean, the biggest what if with Williams is what it means for the team post Jerry Krauss. He, Krauss resigned after 2000 and th- after the 2003 season, which like I mentioned before, entered John Paxson at that point. And his first real move as GM was to draft Kirk Heinrich in the 2003 draft with a seventh overall pick. Now, if Williams never gets hurt, does Paxson still draft Kirk Heinrich? He, he probably does as Heinrich played some shooting guard in college and. He was a a prototypical Pax player, so I mean, he probably still does draft Heinrich. But suddenly, your your backcourt now features Jay Williams, Kirk Heinrich, and Jamal Crawford. So Crawford probably at that point still probably ends up in New York in two thousand and four, two thousand and five, because Jamal Crawford wasn't a John Paxson player at all. So with with Heinrich and Williams still around, I guess the question now becomes when you go forward one year and do the Bulls then draft Ben Gordon in 2004 uh, that I don't know because I'm assuming they still trade for Lowell Dang at with the number seven pick they they pick up Lowell but is Gordon still the play if Paxson feels he, like he already has his backcourt in Jay Williams and Kirk Heinrich so that's an interesting thing to ponder and they're two guys they're both from big products or big college programs where I could imagine Paxson buying into Williams and a Kirk Heinrich backcourt. So I I still probably think he probably takes Ben Gordon, given that the next picks after Ben Gordon were Sean Livingston, Devin Harris, and Josh Childress. They were the picks made between Gordon and before Deng. So it's fair to say that Gordon's still probably the pick that he makes, but it's also fun to think about that not long after, uh, Old Deng was Andre Iguodala. So Maybe if, if, if Paxton's really confident in Williams and Heinrich as his backcourt our uh, backcourt going forward, maybe he, he trades for Luo Deng, but maybe he also, you know, takes a risk and not necessarily a risk, but I mean, in Andre Iguodala was taken with the ninth overall pick. Maybe at that point, he sort of reaches a little bit and, and drafts Iggy at three or, or something of that nature. Maybe he goes with Dang at three and hopes to trade for, for Iggy at number seven, something of that nature. So it's just interesting to think about what the the ramifications are for William sort of staying on the roster before or, or longer than what he eventually did and, and how that shapes the baby bulls era. So that's probably the more interesting thing for me to think about what what would have been with Jay Williams. I don't think he ends up being much of a play. I don't really think he salvages that second rebuild under Krauss with Curry and Chandler. But it's interesting to think what Jay Williams in that sort of timeline does to the baby bulls there and how that sort of affects the draft. So that's where I go with that one. And But uh, like, like I said, I, I don't think Williams himself really dictates too much too quickly anyway I think he the Bulls probably would have moved on from him pretty quickly and in that sense there's a lot of parallels to to Chris Dunn right now where you know for a period at least the Bulls probably would have felt quite confident in Jay Williams but after you know one or two seasons maybe three seasons they probably would have figured out that he's not the guy like we're sort of Realizing now with Chris Dunn so maybe it's a situation where you invest some time and years into a guy only to realize soon enough that he's probably isn't the answer so maybe it doesn't change much at all but look it sucks for Jay Williams obviously his career never became what it did or what he wanted it to be so that's probably the more impactful thing that more so for the Bulls it, it probably hurt Jay Williams significantly more than what it did the Bulls so that sucks for him I guess but um yeah, look, I don't think about that one too often, to be honest with you. But this next one, which is submitted by VJ Vemu, I think about this constantly. <laughs> and this one is: What if the Bulls didn't trade Lamarcus Aldridge to the Blazers on draft night? Oh man, I think about this one all the time. Now, at this point, Paxson was very much well established as the, in his GM role. It's fair to say that during his first few re- years in the rebuild. He was doing a pretty damn good job and, you know, his, in his first season, he had drafted Heinrich and b- begun to tear apart what Kra- Krauss had built. He trades out Jalen Rose, Danielle Marshall, and Lonnie Baxter to Toronto for Antonio Davis, Jerome Williams, and Chris Jeffries, more PAX-like players if, if you wanted to refer to that. He, he then drafts Ben Gordon and, and Lord Deng, and then follows that soon after with a signing and trading of Jamal Crawford to the New York Knicks for Othello Harrington, Dikambe Mutombo, and Frank Williams. So that was a pretty good trade. I, I, I'm i of that of opinion. And then Paxson brings in Ball's Legend. And I say legend in somewhat in tongue-in-cheek, but he's one of my all-time favorite balls. But... He signs Andres Nocione as a free agent and he adds that guy to the core and he was a damn good player during his time uh, with the Bulls and I love Noch. I mean, so Pax was doing some good things. He then trades Dikembe Mutombo to the Houston Rockets for Adrian Griffin, Eric Piotrkowski and Mike Wilkes we all know about Adrian Griffin, but I I mean, I remember rooting for for Pike, and when he would when he would knock down some of those threes. I remember there was there was one game against the Bob uh, the Bobcats. I think it was a season opener when Pike came off the bench and was really influential in the Bulls coming back from a massive lead, a uh, massive deficit rather, and winning it overtime because he was the the main three point shooter in this team. So I remember those days pretty well. And under then Coach Scott Skiles, that team actually won forty seven games in Paxson's second season. So things were going off pretty damn well. It was a, it was a successful period for the Bulls and I mean, they made the postseason at that point. So, that was the first time post the dynasty that the Bulls had actually gotten back in the playoffs. So, I mean, I complain about the management now in the front office, but there was a time where John Paxson was a legitimately good executive and the first three or four or five years of his career, he was doing some damn good stuff and I mean, there was nothing more notable than the huge trade he made with the Knicks in October of 2005, where Pac sent Eddie Curry and Antonio Davis and a 2007 first-round pick. It was a pick swap. He sent that to the Knicks with uh, Jermaine Jackson, Mike Sweetney, Tim Thomas, an unprotected 2006 first-rounder, that 2007 pick swap, which I mentioned before, and a 2007 second-round pick, and a 2009 second round draft pick. So Pax absolutely destroyed the Knicks in that trade because that 2006 unprotected pick actually ended up being the second overall pick in the 2006 draft. So not only did he manage to sign and trade Eddie Curry, who the Bulls didn't even really want to sign at that point, that the Knicks were basically bidding against themselves. He was able to get rid of Eddie Curry, who he didn't necessarily want anyway, but he got a, he got the second overall pick for doing so. And basically that pick could have been Lamarcus Aldridge. Now, obviously, as we're all aware, the Bulls never kept Lamarcus Aldridge. They traded down and they received Tyrus Thomas from the Portland Trail Blazers instead, which I mean, a lot of people will still argue that that was the right move. Again, like I said a little bit earlier, I'm pretty conservative when it comes to the draft. So I would have kept Lamarcus Aldridge. And the reason why this what if is interesting because Along with the 2006 unprotected pick that they received from the Knicks, the 2007 pick swap that they ended up getting ended up being a pretty damn good one as well for the Bulls. They actually moved up from 23, or the 23rd pick, to the ninth pick, and that ninth pick ended up being Joakim Noah. So, in two successive years, the Bulls could have added LaMarcus Aldridge and Joakim Noah to their front court, and. It's not inconceivable to think that the Bulls could have been uh, trotting out a lineup with Kirk Heinrich, Ben Gordon at shooting guard, Luol Deng at small forward, and then in your front court: LaMarcus Aldridge at power forward, and Joakim Noah at center with Andres Nocione coming off the bench, and Chris who Do- uh, who's a good second-round pick, off the bench too. So... I mean, there was a situation there where, again, the Bulls could have built a pretty damn good team. Probably not a team that wins a title. I mean, that team with Lamarcus and Joe Keem and, and the rest of the guys, that's probably a second round out team. Maybe it can get to the Eastern Conference finals with a bit of luck, but I think at most it probably lucks out as a second round exit sort of team, which, again, like I said before, I enjoy those teams because those teams can be fun to root for so long as they're playing the right way. I mean, you, are people actually going to sit here and tell me that they didn't enjoy watching the Bulls post-Derek Rose's ACL injury? I mean, obviously that was tough having no Rose, but that 2013 team, that 2014 team where Nate Robinson went crazy in the playoffs, but then the following season, you had Joakim Noah turning into an MVP candidate and DJ Augustine coming from nowhere and being a really damn good player for the Bulls. Can people honestly sit there and tell me they didn't enjoy those years? I find that really hard to believe. And I mean, those teams were never going to win a title. They won 45 games and 48 games respectively. But that were fun times. But I, I think a, a team with LaMarcus Aldridge, Joe Keem, Noah, and, and the rest of the guys actually had a lot lot higher scope where they probably could have won 52, 53 games, something like that. Similar to what the Portland Trailblazers did when LaMarcus was there with Damian Lillard. That could have been the Bulls to some degree. I mean, it would have been a similar type outcome. So... That's a fun team to root for, and that's why I always wanted to keep Lamarcus. I was a bit more conservative. I understand the risk with with going for Tyrus Thomas, but it just seems like every time the Bulls have gone for that big risk move, whether it was on Krauss, whether it was on John Pax, and it hasn't necessarily worked out for them. So maybe they need to play it a little bit conservative. I've I've never actually. I guess I've never really had much of an issue when they've come to do that in the draft. I like the Wendell Carter Jr. pick. A lot of people called that the safe pick, but that's why I kind of liked it because you knew you were getting yourself a damn good player. So I don't know. It, it would have been interesting. Obviously, the Bulls still in 2006, they, they went out and got uh, Ben Wallace in free agency, who you still hear about being the top prized pick, uh, top prized free agent in 2006, whether it's fans or, or even Bulls management. They'll still refer back to that as, as how, uh, the, as evidence, I guess, that they can land that big fish, but <laughs> um, I, I mean, Ben Wallace was was kind of important. He played his part in that 49-win season, and if you just sort of sub in LaMarcus Aldridge in Tyrus Thomas' place, does, does that 49-win season become 51-52 wins? Maybe. I, I don't know, but... I do know this. I think the, the following season thereafter, after a pretty damn good season in 2006 where, or 2006-2007 when the Bulls won 49 games and again went back to the playoffs. I'm pretty confident in the 2007-2008 season where things really fell off. I, I don't think they win 33 games if they had Lamarcus Aldridge instead of Tyrus Thomas. I think in that situation it, it looks a little bit differently. Obviously Scott, Scott Skiles was fired in that season. The Bulls had three coaches during that season I mean I think Pete Myers coached one game it may have been it was a one game or something very minimal and before long I mean then the the other Jim Boylan not the current Jim Boylan but the the one from yesteryear, he became the interim coach for a period of period of time there I mean the Bulls probably still go through that nonsense where they're changing coaches but rather than being a 33 win maybe they're a 36 37 38 win team so I don't think they fall off as far as what they did that season, but even if they do, you still feel confident because at that point, you've also added Joakim Noah to the mix. So Even though the team's sort of falling apart, Scott Skiles is gone, Ben Wallace is looking very old, you still know that you've got LaMarcus Aldridge and jo- Joakim Noah as your future flunk- front court. So rather than just being left in the situation where Ben Wallace looks like a hack and Tyrus Thomas isn't necessarily getting it together and, and isn't looking as good as what Lamarcus did, who in his second season was averaging 17 points and eight rebounds for the Blazers. I mean, you're still probably being, you're still feeling good about the situation, at least going into the following year. But I mean, the biggest what if with this whole thing, and, and it's the one that keeps being brought up with the Marcus Aldridge situation is, if you get Aldridge, then do you get Derrick Rose? And I mean, it's a fair question to ask. And and like I just said, if the Bulls aren't as bad as what they were in 2008, do they end up with the ninth worst record in the league? And and that's important because, as we know, the Bulls jumped up from ninth to first in the 2008 draft, and with that 1.7 percent chance of jumping up to to get to that number one pick, which obviously happened, they they selected Derek Rose, but. Maybe if you have Lamarcus in place with this team and they win an extra four or five games rather than Tyrus Thomas, then maybe they're sitting 12th and they don't have those odds to jump up from, from, um, ninth, let's say to, to first. would be, you'll be looking to make a jump from 12th to first, which is even more remote than the, the 1.7% 1, 1. chance they initially had. So I guess that's the catch with that error. That if you do have Lamarcus and you do have his floor raising ability, then you probably don't get Derrick Rose. You don't get all the the years that follow on thereafter. You don't get that classic two thousand and nine series against the Celtics. Obviously, you don't get Thibodeau and, and what sort of unfolded with those teams. But even beyond that, you know, do you even get things as small as do, do the Bulls make a trade for John Selmans and, and get to the 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 Eastern Conference playoffs under Vinnie Del Negro at that point and do you have that epic seven game series against the Celtics? You probably don't because you don't get Derek Rose. You're you probably maybe still going into the playoffs, but it's a very different Bulls team at that point. If you don't have Derek Rose, do you, do you hire Vinny Del Negro as your coach? Maybe you still do because the Bulls like to go for first time as his coach. But if for whatever reason, let's say Lamarcus Aldridge, Aldridge is in place, he's more of an established player. Does Mike D'Antoni choose the Bulls over the Knicks back then, and and how does that look? How does that change everything? I mean, maybe the Bulls are a different, completely different team, completely different identity. John Paxson actually wanted Mike D'Antoni to be the coach back in 2008, 2009, but obviously, they went with Vinny Del Negro instead after D'Antoni chose the Knicks, but I mean, does ha- how different does that situation look if you've already got someone like LaMarcus Aldridge and-, and someone that is clearly establishing himself as a- an all-star level player? I mean, how does that sort of change? So by trading Aldridge to the Blazers for Tyrus Thomas, a lot really changes for the Bulls. It's a, it's a real sliding door moment for the franchise. We we know the Bulls obviously end up trading Thomas to the Bobcats and it ended up like a good deal for the Bulls as they received a future first rounder in that deal, which ended up being the pick that turned into Yusuf Nurkic in the two thousand and fourteen draft, which I've definitely got more to uh expand on a little bit later on. But so a lot really does change here and, and it's not necessarily just on the periphery, it really does change the entire direction of the franchise. So it's hard to say what wouldn't what would and what wouldn't remain, but If you look at the main pieces, at least, a lineup of Heinrich, Gordon, Deng, Aldridge, and Noah is pretty damn good. But of course, that assumes that the Bulls then keep Ben Gordon and Kirk Heinrich. Kirk sort of fell off after 2008-2009. He wasn't the same player for whatever reason. Do the Bulls keep Ben Gordon or does he still go to Detroit? It's, it's kind of hard to say. So even though you don't get the Rose years, does that core that I mentioned before, Heinrich, Gordon, Deng, Lamarcus, Aldridge, and Noah, does that sort of still stay in place? I, I don't know. Maybe Gordon still goes to Detroit. Maybe Heinrich doesn't bounce back and become a capable point guard that the Bulls really sort of were able to avoid because they got Derek Rose. That, that too is interesting to think about. So. Man, I don't know. I I really don't know. But staying on the Tyrus Thomas theme, Micatron asks, What if Tyrus Thomas was drafted two years ago into an NBA that was much friendlier to his skill set? So I'm going to assume the same version of Tyrus that the Bulls drafted in 2006 or the Bulls traded for in 2006 is the same one that we get maybe in the 2017 NBA draft. So a player that doesn't necessarily have a jump shot. Has is super athletic, is clearly someone that could potentially be a an, an elite defensive player in the NBA. Where does that player necessarily go in the 2017 draft? So me personally, I don't think there's any way he goes as, as high as the number four pick in this draft. I mean, if you think about a six foot eight projected forward with incredible athleticism and defensive potential, but doesn't necessarily have the offensive skills the modern NBA is looking for. Is he really a better prospect in the current NBA over someone like Larry Markkinen? Uh, I'm not sure that's true. And that said, Tyrus Thomas as a small ball forward or even as a center in this league today truly would be kind of interesting. But I don't know if it would work if he can't shoot or at least is, is wanting to be a sort of rim running big who lived at the dunker spot. And I think it's important to keep that in mind because we have to remember back that Tyrus never really wanted to be an inside guy, never, wanted, never really wanted to play in the post and, and, and a lot of that was probably the source of his frustration and moodiness which likely was the reason why he never received an extension and was why he was probably ultimately traded by the Bulls to the Bobcats. So the guy wanted to shoot jumpers without being much good at it. He wanted to be a wing player and he would often pull up for these terrible mid-range shots and I mean, that won't just fly in this, today's league. So is Tarris smart enough to recognize that? I'm assuming he comes into the league with the same IQ and the same intentions of wanting to be that dominant wing player. And in the current NBA, unless he improves his jumper, he's probably best served as a role man in pick and roll. But would he want to do that? He'd be, he's definitely capable of do, doing that, but would he want to? So that's what I'm wondering. And um, to that, I mean, is is there a coach out there that could potentially reach him? And I, I think it's fair to say that That never happened with Vinny Del Negro, but uh, is there another coach that could potentially turn him into that player? I'm not sure, but honestly, it all comes down to what type of player Thomas wanted to be and if he was malleable enough to want to change. But assuming his mentality remained the same, I don't think he works in the modern NBA, not if he thinks he's a wing like he did back during the mid to late 2000s, but that won't stop me wondering what could have been. And, And part of that, I guess, is because of how much of a miss Aldridge was but Thomas was showing signs for the Bulls and during that season where the Bulls brought in Rose he, he actually averaged 10.8 points per game and six and a half rebounds a game with almost two blocks a game as well as 1.2 steals so he was slowly starting to put it together and next to Noah those two could have been an absolute force on defense around Rose and Gordon assuming the Bulls, assuming the Bulls actually wanted to keep Ben Gordon post, post that 2009 run so He was slowly starting to put it together, yes, he was still a frustrating player, yes, he would still do some dumb things, but it was slowly coming together for Tyrus, but obviously, it didn't last too much longer there for the Bulls, I think, the following season, it was clear that he wasn't necessarily going to get out of the doghouse, and quite quickly, Taj Gibson overtook him, and then... I guess from there, the after that, he after his injury where he missed a, a bunch of time where I think he broke his forearm after lifting weights, the Bulls pretty much moved on pretty quickly and traded him. So I'll always wonder what could have been with Ty- Tyrese Thomas. I'll always prefer the situation of having LaMarcus Roald Aldridge over him, but if Tyrese could have played his cards a little wiser, he could have had a great career, but... I'd be lying if I said I was super high on the guy. And that was probably just more from a character and an IQ perspective. Uh, the dude was clearly talented. He had a ton of talent, but I, I just don't know if he ever puts it together. But I mean, yeah, that's why we're doing this. It, it's always it's always interesting to wonder what if. And I mean, this one, next one that comes in from Michael Peterson, this, one, this one's even bigger than the one I just sort of mentioned there. He asks, what if Derek Rose only deals with normal injuries? Oh, man, this this one's an interesting one. So first thoughts that come to mind when I think about this. So if Rose is only dealing with normal injuries, so let's just say some ankle sprains here and there, a sore back, a, a bum shoulder, that sort of stuff where he only misses maybe 10 or 15 games a season. It changes literally everything for the Bulls, uh, most notably, obviously, in the 2012 playoffs. So if he never goes down in the 2012 playoffs, the Bulls obviously take on the Heat again in the Eastern Conference Finals. I'm I'm pretty confident in that. I don't know if they win, but... I think they get there and I think they would have become a lot closer than what they did in 2011. But if we think about the following seasons, it significantly changes what happens thereafter too. So in 2013, obviously, Rose never plays again because of that ACL injury. And in 2014, he only plays 10 games before going down with a meniscus injury that causes him to miss the bulk of that season so without Rose the Bulls never really had a chance of winning a title in 2013 they never had a chance in 2014 I mentioned those great seasons earlier before thanks to the large part to Nate Robinson and DJ Augustine but if you're thinking thinking about what could have been and subbing in those uh, subbing in Derek Rose for those two guys it, it obviously changes things quite dramatically so But, I mean, it it works both ways. So, if you have Derrick Rose, do we ever get that Joakim Noah season in 2014 if Rose's career as an MVP caliber guy is never effectively over? So, if Rose is around, does does Joakim turn into that point center? I don't know if that happens. And thinking about that more broadly, does Jimmy Butler break out in the way he does if Rose remained healthy all those seasons? He he probably does to an extent, but if if we remember in 2015... Jimmy and Rose sharing the ball. It, it whilst it was never hostile, there, there was some sort of a problem there. It didn't function uh, accordingly, and I mean that was with the Rose in his first full season back, and, it, and he he wasn't necessarily back to what he was. But you'd still have to think that that there would be some sort of issues that would persist. So that you have to consider that too. But going even further, if Rose never goes down with those sort of significant injuries and he's only hampered by minor injuries, do do Tibbs and management end up hating each other to the extent they did? I mean, the constant circus with Rose likely played a a large part in the issues that the coach and front office faced. And as Rose's injuries sort of forced Thibodeau's teams to change every year, it likely led to to a lot of resentment. If if Rose is never hurt, do the Bulls sell off Kyle Korver for a trade exception that becomes nothing? Is Amir Ashik retained? What about the rest of the bench mob? Do the Bulls front office blow up the bench mob? I don't know. I mean, that's a legitimate question to ask too. And I mean, if we think about 2014 and what they tried to do in free agency, are they a significantly more attractive option in 2014? Maybe Mallow's decision's a lot differently if he's sort of tossing up a, a situation between a Derek Rose that is healthy in his prime and is still killing people and who only plays maybe 70 games, versus the Derrick Rose that we sort of came to know who was missing seasons because of knee injuries. Maybe that does make the Bulls a more attractive option in free agency, and maybe Mallow changes his mind. I I, I don't know, but even if Mallow doesn't come, we saw the Bulls with Paul Gasol, Derrick Rose, and Jimmy Butler come ever so close to having a 3-1 lead against LeBron James and the Cleveland Cavaliers. But if you take out, say, let's say, that version of Derrick Rose, the one that had suffered all those knee injuries, the one that was definitely wasn't the same player, but then you, you insert a prime version of Derrick Rose who's only carrying maybe very minor injuries. I mean, where does that team go? That team probably does have a 3-1 lead against, the, against LeBron James and the Cavs, and maybe they would have ended that pretty quickly, that series. Uh, and that's interesting to think about too. If the Bulls beat the Cavs, maybe Tibbs isn't fired. Because you have to think if the Bulls beat the Cavs, they go to the Eastern Conference Finals in 2015. They face the Atlanta Hawks, that 16 win Hawks team who, whilst was a good team during the regular season, wasn't functioning at all during the the, the playoff series. They were actually stalling quite a bit. You have to feel pretty damn confident that the Bulls actually, with a prime rose in 2015... Could actually get to the finals, where they would match up against the Golden State Warriors. They probably lose to that Warriors team, but you get to the finals, and if you get to the finals, is Tibbs still around post two thousand and fifteen? I I don't know. It's, it's it's interesting, really, to think about how all this sort of happens if Rose never gets hurt. So I understand why the Rose injury keeps coming back. Why it was a why management would t- routinely mention it as a burden on the cap situation they faced the years thereafter but when you think about it as a what-if scenario as to what could have happened had he not get injured it really does change every single thing even some of the smaller things so if we think about the 2014 NBA draft obviously the Bulls stuffed that that up completely but if you got prime rows with Jimmy Butler and Paul Gasol let's say obviously you stuff it up with Doug McDermott but even though you've wrecked that draft you, you've you've failed with that draft pick it's mitigated because you've got prime rows around still Taking that a, st- a step further, if Rose is still healthy now and playing well, that the, obviously the Jimmy Butler deal probably never happens. The three alpha era never happens. The Bulls never trade Taj Gibson for Cameron Payne, Jerry and Grant, and Robin Lopez because obviously they're not trading a, an injured Derrick Rose to the Knicks. The rebuild never happens, and who the hell knows? Maybe they get lucky one year and win a title. I, I don't know. Probably not, but you, who knows? <laughs> And and assuming Rose and Butler did work it out, retooling the roster around Rose, Butler, and then when you add in Miritich, maybe it could have been something else. And and you don't need to go down the rebuilding path that the Bulls currently on if you still have a prime Rose. So, I mean, the team probably doesn't have the cap space to go fishing in 2016 because Rose at that point presumably has re-signed, but still a Rose, Butler, and Miritich three-man unit moving forward as Noah and Taj sort of move into their twilight years. That would have been fun as hell. So as you see, li- literally everything changes if Rose never gets hurt. And if we just assume he has even the base level of health as someone like Damian Lillard or Kemba Walker, the Bulls continue to be a long-standing force in the East. But um, yeah, then obviously they're not. But sure, there's a lot of moving parts there and a lot of things can change. But just to think about the amount of discord and nonsense that has surrounded the Bulls over the years, a lot of it, if not most of it, goes away if Rose never tears his ASEL. And obviously that's not his fault, but it, but if it never happens, I, I don't think Thibodeau and management hate each other to the to the extreme lengths that they did. You never get the Reggie Rose saga where he's speaking on behalf of his brother in in, me- in the media. You, you never get the city of Chicago or, or parts of it turning on Rose. The front office is maybe not loath to the degree to the degree that it currently is. So. I mean, hell, they may be even be viewed favorably at this point if that Rose injury doesn't happen and, and, and all the following things that sort of occurred never happened. So, I mean, just just when you think about it all and and what the Rose injury meant and, and how it sort of compounds and just adds to all the nonsense that sort of followed, it, it really does change everything. Oh, man, just reliving all that and playing all, all the possible machinations. Man, is that still sad. <laughs> That feeling of being robbed will never go away. Uh, it, it just won't. It's probably best not to talk about it, even though I've just spent the last 10 minutes doing so. But I mean, if we're doing a what if show, Rose and what could have been may just be the most pertinent one. So oh, I don't know, man, but I, I it's probably a good time to take a break right now. I need to collect myself, go outside, breathe in the air watch some kittens on youtube or something just something that will make me a little bit more appreciative what we do have because that last bit really actually brought me down a little bit so uh this is actually probably a pretty good time to hit pause on this on the show so what do you say we come back later in the week and do part two of these what if scenarios a little bit later on in the week i promise you that they won't be as depressing as this rose stuff well that may not be entirely true. We've got some Butler stuff coming out. We've got some 3-Alpha stuff. And we, of course, have the McDermott trade to go over. But there's some happy stuff included as well, specifically around Zion. So none of it will be as sad as the Rose stuff. So let's do that. We'll break for now. But be on the lookout for part two later this week. You'll find it in all the usual spots. In the interim, follow Bulls HQ on Twitter at Bulls HQ Pod. And follow me on Twitter too while you're at it at MK Hoops. And while you're at it, be sure to check out Blue Wire. You can do so by searching for Blue Wire in your podcast app by going to BlueWirePods.com or following the network on Twitter at BlueWirePods.com. So check out all that. And as I said, I'll be back later in the week for part two of your what-if scenarios. Looking forward to it. But until then, this has been Bulls HQ. Speak soon.